Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with baseball insider Ken Rosenthal. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with senior baseball writer for The Athletic. He's also a sideline reporter for Fox Sports. Ladies and gentlemen, Ken Rosenthal. Ken, thanks for coming on the show. No problem, Brett. It's a pleasure. It's great to great to hear. It's been a while. It's been a while. I got <clears throat> this point of your career. What yes. do you consider yourself to be, a TV guy or a writer? No, writer, always writer. I knew you, I knew you were going to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the TV is nice and it's part of it, but I'm a writer first and everything else flows from that. And it seems like with, with my little experience I've had now with, and I've had several writers on, on the show, but they seem to be very passionate about their writing. They came up as a writer. As you know, the game's changed quite a bit uh, yes. in the last 20 years. But you always go back to your roots. And, and I had a feeling I was going to ask you that, but I had a feeling what the answer was going to be. All right. You grew up in Queens, New York. <clears throat> Tell me about Kenny Rosenthal as a kid. What did you love to do? What was your passion? Did you play? Was it always baseball? It, You're going to love this. <laughs> I love it. I so, will. I actually grew up partly in Queens and then mostly in Oyster Bay, which is in Nassau County. So on Long Island. And I was a kid, it's the classic sports writer tale, couldn't play, so I had to write. And I was a little kid, obviously I'm little now, everybody knows that, but as a youngster, I was really small. So in baseball, I was the kid they told to go up there and not to swing, just get a walk, don't swing, don't ever swing. So I was a bad second baseman. I mean, I could field a little bit, but I was not a good player. Soccer was my best sport, played that in high school, but I can't say I was a very good soccer player either, in part because in addition to being small, I was not all that fast. So the only good part of this was, well, actually a couple of good things happened. One, this is a funnier thing. I would umpire the little league that I played in as I got older. And I would hear coaches tell the kids, Brett, go up there and don't swing. I I would say to the kids, I can't believe I did this because I was like 13 or 14. I would say, you don't swing, you're going down on three pitches. And it would happen. The coaches would go freaking nuts. And I'm like, no, not going to do that. Let the kid play. But the other thing, the more meaningful thing is when I couldn't make my basketball team in ninth grade, couldn't make the freshman team, I became the team's manager. And that kind of got me on a path toward writing. And I got really involved with the school newspaper and did that all through high school and then took that to college and that's kind of how it all started really for me not being able to play <laughs> i'll tell you if, if the first thing you're told is don't swing look for the walk you're in a lot of trouble because I, I kenny i played a long time and there were times there were weeks <laughs> there were slumps <laughs> where i thought man what i would pay for a walk right now and and those are the times that you couldn't walk it was going to be first pitch fastball two seamer on the black second pitch break a ball is going to drop it in you're going to be oh two before you know what hit you if you're up there right. looking for the walk so uh that, that's well nobody could said. throw me a strike that was the point my strike zone was like you know six inches vertical right <laughs> but, but you don't tell kids that you, know, <sighs> you know you let kids play it's kind of stupid 
You went to Oyster Bay High School and you, and you went on to Penn. Why Penn? Well, when I was a senior in high school, I had back surgery, scoliosis surgery. And I knew I wanted to go to college for journalism, but I had a cast from my neck to my hips for six months. And I had to go to college like that. So I actually got into Northwestern's journalism school, which is one of the two or three best in the country. But it was Chicago. It was a little far. I still had to come home to see the doctor once in a while. So I figured Penn was a better choice. And Penn, then and now, Brett had a great daily newspaper. Like, great. We had, we've had some really prominent people come out of that paper, and it was a great training ground. And that was how I spent college. It was almost like, I won't compare it to an athlete's schedule, but my time was at the paper. I didn't care so much about class. It was just learning yeah. at the paper, and I had great people to learn from. And to this day, I have great fond memories of, of that time. Yeah, that's the question I, that, that I, I wanted to talk to you about is as an athlete, I went to college. I, di- I didn't have I did not have the cast from neck to hip to start my college to, to start my college years off. But you're right. I was laser focused. I had blinders on. I went to USC start yep. to finish. All I thought about was what times practice, what times practice and who are we playing this week? Who are we playing midweek? Who do we got on the weekend? And that's all it was. And I've got to keep my grades at a certain level just so I can stay on the field. I'm not saying all you kids out there listening, that's the right way to go about it, but right. that's, how, but that's how this guy did it. I mean, it was all about, you know, what I had in my future. And, and I was just that I had blinders on and, you could tell me from a young age, hey, what do you want to do? Oh, I'm going to be a baseball. Well, what if that doesn't work out? Are you kidding me? Do you know who you're talking to? Of course, it's going to work out. Don't even say that it's not going to work out. I'd already seen it. Um, you said you, you weren't so worried about class. It was all about the newspaper. Just that, that yep. focus, that passion you got to have, especially to achieve where you're headed at the highest level. Right. And ultimately, I don't know that I knew this at the time because you're in college. You're just dumb. You're doing what you think is, you know, your passion. You're following your passion, your dream or whatever. But for what I wanted to do, grades ultimately didn't matter. And it was, almost, again, almost like an athlete. All I had to do was pass. And I did a little bit better than that, not much. But when I went for my first job, they didn't care about my GPA. They cared if I could do this, you know, and that ultimately was more meaningful. And that training I got at that paper, again, it was a five day a week paper, a college newspaper that came out five days a week. And it was invaluable. It really taught me not how to be a professional because that had to come later, but it taught me the basics. And that's what I was there for. And that's what I wanted. Growing up might've happened before college. Uh, What's your first trip to the ballpark? The first game you remember? I don't have a clear memory, but Ron Swoboda from the Mets was my first favorite player. Now, I, my first game would have been at Chase Davis. We went to Yankee Stadium once in a while, and this was the old Yankee Stadium. Um, but my dad was a Mets fan. Actually, he was a Giants fan before they left and transferred his National League allegiance to the Mets, and then I became a Mets fan because of that. You know, my dad was a Mets fan, so why not? And in 69, 1969, I was seven years old. And I remember they won the World Series that year. It was an amazing year. And my first memories are from that time. And I have another great memory from 73, my first playoff game. This I do remember. 
That was the game when Pete Rose and Bud Harrelson got into this huge brawl, middle of a playoff game. Rose slid into second and all hell broke loose. And my mom missed the whole thing. She was at the concession stands buying me and my sister like hot dogs or whatever. Yeah, I do remember that, Pete and Bud. Uh, And, you know, along the way, I I remember a Bud Harrelson. Bud and Dad played together at some point. Now you're making my Mm -hmm. memory. I'm I'm having a memory lapse now, but uh, that's, yeah, it's kind of an iconic fight. Um, When you're at Penn, my son just, he graduated Princeton. He signed with the Washington Nationals. But outstanding. we took a a trip because he was at, you know, he was going to go uh, to school. He didn't know where we went to Dartmouth. Uh, we ended up going to Princeton. We went to Penn. And I remember pulling up to Penn because I went to USC. I don't know if you've been to the campus out there, but my that, two, two of my three kids went to USC. Brett. Oh, OK. So so yeah. you're, you're well similar, aware. Actually. It's very yeah. similar. That's what I was going to ask. If you if you see the similarities, I pulled up to Penn and we were meet with the baseball coach and I just kind of looked around and I went, what a dump. You know, and I was parked somewhere and, I'm, you know, we ended up meeting the coach. And he said, oh, let's take you on to campus. I went on to campus. It was beautiful. There was grass and trees and birds. But from the outside, when you're just pulling up to park, it's kind of like SC. SC is like yep. you're in the you're in the hood. You're in a tough part of town. Then all of a sudden you go on campus and, and you know, it's like in the movies. It's like, oh, and it, it, yeah, that's I, exactly right. And the day I went to visit Penn, my dad had gone to Penn. And because of that. I would always say, I'm not going to Penn. Uh, that, he would talk about, I'm not going there. Forget that. I'm not going there. Well, the day I went down there was one of those beautiful spring days. Everybody's out. And, you know, I fell in love with it. And then I saw the newspaper and that was my choice. So you're right, though. Both USC and Penn are very similar in basically inner city neighborhoods. And at the time, the neighborhood around Penn was, it's okay. It was okay. It wasn't great. You didn't really want to venture far off campus, um, but I wanted to be in a city too. So that was a desire of mine. And I, I wanted that. And that was one of the reasons that Penn appealed to me. Were you one of those Penn kids walking around with a Philly cap, but you're from New York and you know, you like the Yankees or the Mets? <laughs> well, <laughs> <that's an issue. laughs> all the Philly teams are really good when I was there. And, that was a constant battle with the Philly kids and the Pennsylvania kids. It was a little different than most, even for a school like Penn and Ivy league school. And I guess less so for Harvard and Yale and Princeton, they always drew from a national group of people, but things were more local. You didn't see kids from the East go to USC back when I was a kid. It didn't really happen as much. And I don't know that you saw many kids from the West go to Penn. So it was composed of a lot of New York kids, a lot of Jersey kids, Pennsylvania kids, Philly kids. So we were always arguing about, you know, <laughs> Flyers, Rangers, Islanders, you know, all the whole deal. Right. But that's, I mean, I, I, I grew up right across the bridge. I grew up over there in, in Medford by Cherry Hill. And uh, that's how it was. I mean, that was, I, and I still love it. You know, I've been a California guy for a lot of years now. But I, I have so many fond memories growing up on the East Coast in New Jersey, just that Jersey kid. And I, and I remember when that day came, when my dad got traded to the Angels and he said, uh, we're moving to Southern California. I said, the hell we are. I'm not moving. I got my buddies, you know, because when you're an East Coast kid, you don't you don't hang in the West Coast. That's that's like forbidden. And I remember that it, it ended up being the best thing ever happened to me because I came out. I had the great weather. I got to play year round uh, for 
for where my career was headed. But uh, at the time when you're 13, 14 and you got to move and you're a Jersey kid, you know how it is. It's that's the way yep. you are. You're built a certain way and it it doesn't really uh, <clears throat> connect with the West Coast too much. No, it's much different. And I loved it there. And really, I almost consider Philly a second home, although I lived in Baltimore for many years and now I live in the New York area. But that area is great. And I actually worked not in Medford, but I worked for the Cherry Hill paper, the Courier Post. Courier Post. For a couple of years. That was before I got to Baltimore. So I spent time there even after I had graduated. And again, a lot of great memories there. I love going there to cover games still. It's a blast for me. You remember Olga's Diner? I don't remember that. Was in that in Jersey? That was in Cherry Hill, right at that Cherry Hill Circle. Come on, Kenny. How do you not remember uh, Olga's Diner? Might not have been there, but Brett, you were there a little before me, I think. <laughs> I, I worked was... in Cherry Hill, 86, 86. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You're right. Olga's yeah. might have been gone by then. It might have been gone. All right. So you're first, you're interning for Newsday. And what years were you interning for Newsday? Um, all right. That would have been my sophomore and junior years right. of college. Right. So what does an intern do? Well, <laughs> it's so. changed a lot. Uh, but one thing that was interesting about when I was an intern at Newsday, a guy named Tom Ferducci was two years ahead of me as an intern at Newsday. Now, he was gone by then. He was working in, I think, Daytona Beach, Florida. And he, he was the standard. Even then, Tom was the freaking best. He was the best of us. And people at Newsday thought of him very highly. And my group of interns, I was in the sports department and I didn't, I wasn't Tom Bernucci. It was as simple as that. So what I did, Brett, I didn't write. It was back then. It's so different now. The box scores were not automated. You had to do a number of things to them on the computer, put in like 15 different commands to make them fit in the newspaper, to make it format okay, because they would come from the Associated Press through some wire, and then you'd have to do all this. And we were on deadline, and this was my job. I had to get all the box scores right on deadline and get them into the paper. And it was absolutely terrifying is not the right word, but it was a nerve-wracking thing. And I, for many years after that, would dream those commands because – you have to put them in really quickly. So <laughs> ultimately, I did get to write a little bit my second summer there. But, and I've told this story before, when I went back during my senior year to talk to them, I knew I wasn't going to be at Newsday's level come out of college. I just wasn't. Tom was really close to that. He only spent one year away. But at the same time, I just wasn't at that level, right? So I went in to see the sports editor, a guy named Dick Sandler, who's since passed away. And he basically said, listen, man, why don't you go to law school? You're you're not really, the message was you're not good enough, right? And I wasn't going to law school. So I started out in York, Pennsylvania. It's the only job I could get. A friend of mine, a college roommate of mine, John Delapina, who now works for the NHL, a big public relations executive there. Um, He helped me get to York and ultimately I made it. And yeah, that conversation fueled me because Brett, I know you went through this too. All players do at one point. It seems like you get told no. And you're like, uh, -uh, 
I'm doing it my way. Now I wasn't that cocky or anything close to that, but I just knew I wanted to do this. And ultimately it worked out and ultimately it worked out. Now I didn't know it was going to work out. And my dad would always say to me, Hey man, how are you going to make in this career? Because frankly, baseball writers at newspapers did not make a lot of money. And I was not a baseball writer to start with. I had to work at two different papers before I even became a baseball writer. And I didn't have a goal of necessarily being a baseball writer. Now, Brett, you know, Tim Kirkjian and Buster Olney, Jason Stark, Tyler Kepner. I can name those four I know specifically. Those guys had a dream of writing about baseball. I just wanted to cover one of the top four professional sports or maybe even college. It didn't matter to me. But ultimately, I landed in baseball and I'm internally grateful for it because it's the best sport to write about. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code Boone, B-O-O-N-E. Bet $1 on either team to score and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code Boone this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Ken Rosenthal. I mean, obviously, my life, my family, that's all I've known. My whole life is baseball. But at the end of each year, you know, I just look to why. And, and I'm still a big fan. And I watch the games and I watch the playoff games and people ask you the questions. And it seems like an awful lot of the time I'm finishing my answer with. And that's why baseball is the greatest game out there. And I don't yep. know. I don't know why, but it seems that every question that's posed to me, not every, but a lot of the questions that are posed to me as, you know, an explorer. Hey, Brett, did you watch this? Tell me about this. What did, why did why did they do this? And it, it seems like more times than not, it ends with. And that's why it's the greatest game in the world. And I, and I don't know that other sports have the luxury or. Uh, of ending their sentences that way. So when you say that, I agree with you. I think it is. It's the greatest game, and it always has been and always will be. And it's different than other sports. Now, you can say there's no clock. Exciting. There's, there's no, no clock. clock. You, can, you can say anything you want. NBA, NHL, they all have their great attributes. I love them all. But to me, as a writer, what makes this special is that when we start on opening day, what you have are 30 reality shows going on for the next six months. And then an even better reality show in the seventh month, which is October. And the ebbs and flows of a season are so fascinating. And just all the things that happen and all the crazy things that happen and all the amazing things that happen, that's what makes it so fun for me. And the idea, and you know this to be true, we all do, 
to the ballpark on a given day, you might see something you've never seen before. It might not be a 500-foot home run. It might be some crazy play like the Baez play, right, when he ran backwards on the first baseline. Wait, and right, and they ended up scoring. Second. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it could be anything, but that's kind of the charm of the game. And if you understand the game, and this is the thing, I don't have – I didn't have that natural, lifelong, unbelievable passion – but as you begin to understand the game a little bit better, that passion grows. Because the more you know about this game, the more you want to learn. And you never know enough. None of us do. It's just a constant battle, as it is for a player to get better. As a writer, it's to learn more, to understand better, to relay it better in your articles. And that's what makes it so much fun and so challenging to me. So you're at the York Daily Record. You moved on to the Courier Post we, we touched on. And then you ultimately end up at the Baltimore Sun from uh, 1987 to 2000. You're Maryland Sports, yes. writer, Sports Writer of the Year five times. We really don't have time to go over the alumni. The alumni for, for that Baltimore Sun paper is, is oh very, very long. And, and the question I had, what, what is interesting to me about this side of the ledger, your, your, your world, in my world, we've all got our we've all got our swings. We've all got our approaches, our setups. You know, the one thing is when that ball's in the hitting zone, all the good hitters are in the same spot. We get there differently. We all may start differently, but we all get there. In the writer's world, do you guys have your own swing? Yes. It's a little different than a player, of course. But I would say we all have our own style. And I can't be Dan Shaughnessy or I can't be anybody you might want to name. Let me blow this off. Hold on. Uh, I might, I, I, I'm not those guys, right? I'm, I'm my own guy. I'm different. I'm this guy, Ken Rosenthal. I, I write in a certain way. And that's kind of the beauty of what we do too. We all, we're not all alike. Some guys are better at one thing. Some women are better at another thing. It, it, it all through journalism. It's like that. So, you have to find your own voice. It takes a while and it's kind of tough to even maintain that and master it. But at the same time, that's what's gotta, it's gotta be. I'm sorry, Brett, the phone keeps going. That's all right. Yeah. I got something going on, (laughs) but uh, that's just the way um, it has to be. And ultimately when you find that voice and you get comfortable in that voice, that's when you really can mature as a writer and a journalist. And again, it takes time and it's constantly evolving too. I'm a different guy than I was at the Baltimore Sun. At the Baltimore Sun, I was a columnist. And well, initially I covered the Orioles as a beat. That was four years. Then I became a sports columnist, covered all the sports, wrote opinions on them. And I was a little bit (laughs) the equivalent of a wild swinger. I would take my shots. I wasn't very subtle. I wasn't at times very good because I didn't understand nuance and how to make points without using a hammer. And that's something you learn over time. All these things you learn over time. And it's just part of the maturation process. The good thing about our careers is we have more time, right? We don't have just five, 10 years like a major league player does. If that we have time, hopefully if we can stay in it and keep going to get better. You worked in Baltimore, uh, obviously Philly, New York media compare and contrast the three for me. 
the differences and the, Actually, and the like. That's a really good question. This is a really good question because New York and Philly are much more open. The fans, the readers are much more open to criticism of the teams than they were, at least when I was in Baltimore. In Baltimore, it's a more parochial city. And I was an outsider coming from New York and Philly, essentially. New York as a home, Philly as college and the newspaper where I came from. And they didn't want to hear me criticizing the Orioles. They didn't really want to hear any criticism of the Orioles, but they certainly didn't want to hear this young whippersnapper from up north talking about their teams. And this was a shock to me. It was culture shock because I grew up reading the New York Post and working in Philly until you took somebody's head off, right? So, and your dad, I'm sure, could attest to that. He understands that whole culture. So Baltimore was a big adjustment. And actually, group in Baltimore, I'm sure, never really got to the point where I was fully accepted because of that. But that's just the way it is. But yes, Baltimore is a lot different than New York and Philly from a media standpoint. 90 to 2000, you're an SI contributor, especially back then. SI was a big deal. How did you look that at look at that when you got uh, when you got that gig? Well, that wasn't much of a gig. Um, basically, what I did, Brett, every week was I would file just notes and observations uh, from around the league, what I had seen that week, or different reports that I would have. I think most of it was based on the Orioles uh, at that time. And I never got in a magazine or anything like that. I was never at that level. But I met a lot of great people doing that. And it was kind of an honor because Sports Illustrated, you're right, at that time was the thing. I hope that the athletic is sort of like that now. It's kind of our goal. We have a lot of people from Sports Illustrated, actually. So that was kind of a minor job, a second job or a third job, whatever it was at that time, just to kind of bring in a little more money, honestly. Sporting News 2000 to 2005, the Bible of baseball. All the big-time writers, they've always gone through the sporting news. Um, at what point, did, or was there even a point for Ken Rosenthal when you thought, wow, sitting back in your, in your dorm room in Penn, was there ever a time that, go, that you said, I made it, I'm here? Or is it, is it keep moving? Does that, does that goalpost keep moving for you? You want to just keep going forward and not think about that? Well, actually, Brett, when I became a columnist, the Baltimore Sun, I think I was 28. I thought that was pretty good. And it was pretty good. At the time, being a sports columnist in a newspaper was a big deal, a really big deal. And I had done it at 28. And I thought, wow. But it turns out that the specialists, guys who focus on one sport, women who do the same, they became somewhat more prominent as time went on. So when I jumped to the sporting news, that's why I did it. Because I thought, I didn't think newspapers were limited in their future, though it certainly turned out to be that way. But I thought maybe I should do what Tim was doing, because I had been working against Tim in Baltimore, Kirkchen. And Jason Stark was on television at that time for ESPN. He was a friend of mine. And I was like, well, maybe I could do what those guys are doing. And the step to the sporting news was a step in that direction, to becoming a national baseball writer. But I guess ultimately, when I got to Fox and when I got to work a World Series, that was 2006. 
that was certainly a big thrill and a big deal. And I knew it. And my dad, who was hard on me, just like most, most dads are never satisfied. He always asked me <laughs> when I was a college, the Baltimore Sun, he would say, you know, my friends and I, we sit around and we ask if you have talent. And I'd be like, dad, Tom, it's the Baltimore Sun. I'm not even 30. Obviously, I'm doing something right. But that's the kind of conversation we would have. Right. And then that first year after I was on the World Series, he said to me, you know, that was pretty good. And I'm like, yeah, yeah that was pretty good. Yeah, Dad. <laughs> so I've been I, blessed to be there ever since. That's very cool. That's a, that's a cool story. Yeah. <laughs> Dad qu- <clears throat> questioning you through college. Kid, come on. Go on to something else. You're not going to make it as this big-time writer. And then you're – you're the sideline reporter at the World Series interviewing the players. Dad's looking back. Well, you knew that. He was just sitting in the room, just gloating, bragging about his kid. Well, yeah, that's, of course. He's telling his friends one thing, and he's telling me something else. Oh, without a doubt. Without a (laughs) doubt. How'd you get to Fox Sports? You call them, they call you. At the time, they had all these different regional networks that are now the Bally networks, the Sinclair. They eventually sold them long after this happened. So I would through the sporting news, they had this connection with Fox where I would report on different teams to different cities. So for instance, I might do something for the Seattle Fox affiliate. I don't know if you know that there was one then, but I, but this is an example. I would sit down in a studio. I would bang out Seattle, Texas, Philadelphia, however many there were in one day, like a weekly report. And that's how I started. And then I was working on ESPN, what was then called cold pizza. Now it's first take. And so I was doing a little bit of television and ultimately it got to the point where the sporting news was kind of in trouble. And one of my bosses said, you know, you might want to look around. We, we don't want to lose you, but just be aware. And I was aware. So I actually had offers from ESPN and Fox and I chose Fox because of the potential. It wasn't guaranteed that I would be able to do, what the job that I ultimately have done, which is that dugout reporter and worker all-star game and world series and all of that. And again, it was a bit of a risk because ESPN was obviously a safer bet and the role would have been clearer, but I was a little afraid, honestly, they were going to have me do so much. I was like, that sounds crazy. Now, ultimately I ended up working at that pace for Fox, but I didn't know that was going to be the case at the time. And, and you know what? Either choice would have been great, but I must say I definitely made the right choice. And it's been one of the great thrills I can have to work this long at Fox. I'm still there and I'm loving it. How's your position at Fox? How's it evolved over the years? It's been, what, 16 years now? Uh, It's the same. The only thing that's changed is the website. Now, initially, I was hired as a writer and potentially a person on television. Now that happened the second year. They put me on TV with Joe Buck and Tim McCarver and it worked out. But in 2016, they changed the entire direction of the website, said I wasn't going to write anymore. Said nobody was going to write anymore. The website was going to be all video. And though they did that, they also told me, listen, we understand you're a writer. That's what you want to do. If you want to go somewhere else to write, we'll, we'll be good with that. And that was kind of a pretty cool thing for them to do. They didn't have to do that. So at the time, initially, I didn't have any opportunities. I started writing on Facebook 
for a couple of months, I did this and I had some of my old editors that would help me and they'd edit me and it was fine, for, for, but that's not a job. <laughs> that was my, that was me just having to write. And then the athletic came along and I had a couple of different choices, but the athletic, I just felt really good about. And they were really small at the time. They were only in like four cities. They were just starting to hire a few national writers and it became something much bigger than I ever thought it could be. And it's been totally great. Doing your work at Fox, how's your relationship with the players? Good. And actually being on television has helped my relationship with the players. Because, Brett, you know this. You're in a clubhouse. You see the guy on TV. It makes you know him or her more than just some random byline in the paper. Unless it's the beat writer covering your team, you're going to know that person. But it is an elevated status. And certainly players and even minor leaguers, when they come into the game, they know who I am just from television. They might not have ever read an article of mine. That's fine. But they generally will know, hey, this guy, he's been on TV, he's been on TV for a while, and they become more familiar with you. And I noticed that right away. And it was kind of jarring to me because I thought, well, you make your name as a writer. That's what players should know you as, but that's not the real world. Everybody watches television, not everybody reads. So it's, there's no question it helped me with my identity, I guess you'd say. Yeah, because I mean, in between at bats, especially in the postseason, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be up watching, uh, you know, for sequences, for pitch, pitches, how they're pitching a certain guy in between my at bat. And then we're going to pop down on the field for Ken Rosenthal. So I'm going to see you. And right away, I'm going to come out maybe after the game, that game, uh, you're going to pull me over. So, yeah, it's it's kind of a uh, I don't I don't know what the word is for it, but it's it's. um I don't know. It's a nice thing for players. It's an, like you said, it's an identity, but it's almost like, yeah. Oh, okay. You're Kenny. Yeah. You do the show. You, you, you interview right. us after the game. Right. I get it. I get and it. And also there's an accountability too. And the thing I love about our jobs when the clubhouses are open, they haven't been open for a couple of years because of COVID, but even now when player can see us on the field. Now, Brett, if I'm the Seattle times beat writer, when you're playing and I've written something critical about you. Well, I'm at the ballpark the next day and you as a player have every right and often will come to me and say, Hey, what's up, man? Why, why'd you write that? And you have a talk and there's accountability on both sides. The accountability from you guys is you play and you know, you're accountable for your performance and our accountability is, Hey, we show up and we've got to be there. And listen, they, they know how to find you now. Obviously, as a national writer, I can't be present everywhere all the time, but people know where to find me, especially now. It's social media. It's easier. But I also believe that being on television, if a guy has a problem and he sees me in a couple of months, okay, we can hash it out there. And I just believe that's a really important thing. Want to get to the lockout. Uh, baseball, obviously, is at a standstill. Hasn't, haven't heard much about it at all for five weeks since they imposed that, that lockout date. I believe it was December 1. Now, my family goes back a long way. My dad was a, a National League rep. I was a rep for the Cincinnati Reds when, when Bud Selig strolled to the, to the microphone and, and canceled the 1994 World Series. And us as players, we didn't even know it was going to happen. 
Uh, so that was my first learning experience. I went through the process. I've been in those rooms. I know what those rooms are like. Yep. I have an idea of what's going on right now. I'm not in those rooms right now. I have an idea. Uh, you know, and I thought about it a lot. I thought about the COVID season of 2020, the 60 games. Um, I think they did a great job. All things considered, I thought they did a great job. We had a wonderful playoff and a great World yep. Series. And it was they made the best of a bad situation. And I think fans, are okay. they were okay with that. They said, you know, they did the best they could. I think you have a work stoppage. And I always know this. <clears throat> Nothing ever gets done until there's some pressure. Well, the first pressure point I see is going into February because then next Correct. thing you know, you're going to be saying two weeks pitchers and catchers report. Once that hits, there's a little bit of pressure because the next thing is we're going to have to start the season late. That's when the fans start to get pissed. Yep. And I know that from what I went through and, and it was that 94 canceling that 94 world series did some damage to the game. And it was years, two, three, four years before the game came back. I'd hate to see that happen now. Um, you know, our leaders were Glavin and Paul Molitor and Cecil Fielder sitting in those rooms. It was actually, it, it was it was amazing to go through the process and be educated and, and find out what it's really like on both sides of the ledger. Um, what are you hearing now? Uh, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? Not hearing anything. Nothing's going on. There's no deadline. As you said, this is not going to heat up until it has to heat up, which is right before spring training or in the weeks before spring training. So ultimately, Yes, I do believe a deal will be reached. I don't think the season is going to be compromised. I can't imagine the two sides are that dumb to have that happen, that they can't figure out a way to get this done. But there's a history here, as you know. And it's not a pleasant history between these two parties. And there's a lot of ego involved. There's a lot of pride involved. And it's getting in the way. <laughs> and it's right now a pretty strained relationship. And... We'll see what happens. The players certainly want to make some gains because they've lost some things in the previous two agreements, especially the last one. And ultimately, I do believe everything works out in the end and we get a better agreement. We get the sport back on its feet and on time. But there's no guarantee of that because this thing has every potential to turn to. Well, I think there's in, in what I, you know, what I went through, there's a lot of mistrust in those rooms. And yes, yes. Um, you know, I, I know the basic, uh, the basic sticking points, universal DH. I think the owners have kind of owners and players have kind of agreed to that. Yeah. We want to bump the minimum salary. Yeah. But we want this number. The owner wants this number postseason mm -hmm. 14 games. The players want 12. Okay. There's a compromise to be had there. What I see the mistrust is, and I, and, and this is just me speculating. I think the players see how some of these players service time has been manipulated over the years where up, we're not going to call you up, even though you should be up here because that's going to, you know, that's going to buy us another year of arbitration, another year of free agency. I think the owners think we're paying these kids so much out of the draft. Now, you know, this year they're paying the minor leagues, uh, their accommodations, their living expenses for them. They've got a lot invested in these minor league players. And I think, and I can play devil's advocate. I can get on the owner's side and say, well, 
They're right. They do have a lot, not only financially wrapped up in these minor league players that that's what they want. Three years for arbitration, six years for free agency, whereas the players probably want two years, two and a half, five years, five and a half for for uh, being a free agent. So I don't know. There are just so many different. Uh, it's just a matter of what is that ultimate sticking point? Where would this both sides won't budge? Where does, where does rationality come in? Yeah, that's a good question. I got to run, but I'll answer it this way, that it's not clear exactly which issue on both sides is the drop dead issue. And maybe that's a problem, right? Maybe because it's not necessarily that obvious that it's difficult to, get to a point where there's a deal, but the owners are not asking for a salary cap. That would be a drop dead issue. The players are asking for gains, but nothing that in my view is especially outrageous. Now, certainly there's room to negotiate on both sides on all sides, but that's one of the issues here. I don't know where this goes, Brett. And it's, it's kind of interesting because When you don't have a single issue, remember when you were playing, there was a, I think there was a one year where arbitration eligibility was the big one. This year, it seems to me they would like the players gains on a number of fronts and they would want the competitive integrity restored, the tanking eliminated. But how to do that, there are any number of ways, which makes it kind of an amorphous thing here that is not really defined so well. Yeah. It's interesting. We will we will see uh, what's coming up. It's uh, been a pleasure. Appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. And now we'll kick it back to Dan. That's going to do it for the Red Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and the, the voice of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer is all taken care of by Rich Herrera. Digital content gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give it a five-star rating. Share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here at the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Booner, flip the bat. We're out. Let's do it. <laughs>